Welcome to another Humble Perspectives podcast. As the end of the 1980s approached, my inner life was becoming more settled in the love of God the Father. This prepared me to have renewed vision of God's kingdom, renewed hope for Christ's church, and renewed courage for new labors in the Lord. Chapter 22 of For Such a Time as This reflects that renewal, even in its title, Stepping Out. And so I begin. Paul Petrie had come back to Lexington for a few months in the spring of 1988. One day he called me into his office to tell me that he believed it was time to make the change to a new permanent senior pastor in Lexington Covenant Church. Paul asked me to write out my vision for the church, along with my plan for bringing the vision into reality. He also indicated that I was not the only elder with this assignment. As I thought and prayed about it, I knew that my vision was not a match with a good deal of what I understood the church, church growth material, which we had been reading, to be advocating. I didn't oppose their insights, but it was not my desire to become a rancher managing others who cared for the people rather than to be a shepherd walking with and caring for a flock in a personal way. I did not have the inclination to preach to a congregation of seekers on Sunday morning, hoping for converts who would later get connected into small groups of one sort or another for discipleship, fellowship, and service. Frankly, I really didn't have confidence that Lexington Covenant's call was to be one big church with lots of small groups. I was more inclined to see us emphasize the flocks we already had as the primary structure of the church. Although we still had those flocks, those groups that were led by an elder and the team of men close around him, we gradually had become more of a Sunday morning congregation that had small groups rather than a community consisting of several flocks. I believe that by doing three things, we could have unity and cooperation in the whole community. First, it was crucial for the elders to continue to maintain and build on the relationships of love and unity that we already had among ourselves. Second, each flock leader needed to continue leading the members of that flock into honest, functioning relationships of love and unity. Finally, to the degree that love and unity characterize the mutual relationships of the elders and the relationships among each flock and its members, then we could gather the flocks monthly or bi-monthly in a gathering of the whole community in order to celebrate and worship before the Lord and receive common instruction together. This was not a new vision. It was a proposal to become more like Covenant Church had been in the first two years after our flock moved from Minneapolis to Lexington. In an effort to hold the whole community together while people were leaving, we had tried to consolidate by having all of us together every Sunday, and I believed we had lost something vital in personal relationships and in common life together. Although I believe this to be the best direction for our church, I was not fully confident that I was the leader who could restore, quote unquote, Lexington Covenant to what it had formerly appeared to be. I did believe that some of the flocks would prosper if we led the church in this direction, even if some of the other flocks that had lost a number of people needed to integrate into one of 
those that was strong in my written vision. I added that if our vision was to be a church of thousands with big Sunday meeting, perhaps among those elders fully focused on our local church, David Reddish might be able to lead us in that direction. I don't know what any of the other brothers may have shared with Paul. However, if our, at our annual elders retreat in June, Paul announced that he believed it was time for him to step back from being senior pastor and that he was turning that responsibility over to David. We elders confirmed the decision and the change took place in that retreat. David's leadership did not stop the loss of members, however. In fact, as with most such leadership changes, some left who might have stayed, even though David, along with the rest of us who were serving as local elders, gave it his best and sought to lead the church into the new decade. Charles Simpson had become, been coming to Lexington every year since I'd been in the church to spend several days among us. Brother Charles was a close friend of Paul's and the one to whom Paul looked for his own personal pastoral oversight. Typically, Brother Charles would speak at a meeting for our cell group leaders and also at two or more meetings of the whole church. In addition, he also met with the elders, often for a meal while he was with us. In 1989, when Brother Charles came for his annual visit, David Jaunt John, excuse me, David Reddish John Meadows, Kent Ostrander and I, the local elders, those who had been caring for Covenant Church hands-on, spent several hours talking about the state of the church with him. The four of us, along with two secretaries and a maintenance man, were by this time the only full-time employees of the church. Ken had been an elder and a leader of one of the flocks in the church since before I'd moved to Lexington. But he also had always been active in the pro-life movement in Kentucky. He had worked hard and successfully to bring a number of different pro-life groups together into a functioning statewide coalition. At this meeting with Brother Charles, Kent shared with us his vision to start a pro-family organization in Kentucky. He believed that such a group would serve to promote and advocate for legislation that would support and strengthen traditional Christian values across the state. He wanted to be released from eldership in order to pursue this vision full time. I remember that Brother Charles was positive about Kent's vision and the need for such work to be done, but he also expressed his concern that it's extremely difficult to raise and maintain support for such a work. David, John, and I also expressed our support for Kent's vision. To Kent's credit and God's glory, the Family Foundation, which he began, has become an effective organization and still serves the Kingdom of God and the Commonwealth of Kentucky faithfully in the civil arena. That meeting was not significant only for Kent, however. Brother Charles addressed John and me about the reality of our own situations as full-time employees. Without mincing words, he pointed out the previously unspoken truth that only David's job in the church in terms of being paid position was secure. Brother Charles warned us that unless John and I actively and effectively helped the church grow in numbers and ministry, we would need to find work elsewhere. I left that meeting sobered and motivated to begin to seek the Lord diligently about what I needed to be doing. 
in part, admittedly, because my livelihood depended on it, but also, and to a degree, greater degree, I hope, for the good of the church and God's kingdom. I wanted my motivation to be pure, not self-serving. Therefore, I did everything I could to set my heart on serving God's kingdom at whatever cost to myself. I was, in fact, already active in outreach in a couple of ways. First, one of the brothers in the church had recommended a local automobile repair shop at a time when I needed mechanical services. Over time, I had become friends with the owner, Bob, and with his employees, and with many of his friends as well. To my knowledge, none of these people knew Jesus, and I had been investing a significant amount of time in building these relationships in hopes that these new friends would come to know Jesus and follow him. In large part, my persistence in those efforts was due to something specific I had heard the Lord say to me. One day I was reading Paul's exhortation to Timothy regarding his work as a pastor when one charge in particular grabbed my attention. Paul wrote, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, and then verse 5. In my mind, a question came up. Do the work of an evangelist? How does a pastor, a shepherd of a flock, do that? I wondered to myself, but unexpectedly from within, I heard that voice of the Lord say, Use the gift I have given you. Adopt some goats. Take care of them and pray for me to turn them into sheep. Now I understood goats to be those who did not know and follow Jesus, based on Jesus' parable in Matthew 25, 31-46. Because they didn't know him, they would not inherit the eternal kingdom, whereas the sheep will inherit that kingdom. So it seemed very simple. What goats did I know? How about Bob and his friends, I thought. And after that, I began to go to the shop two or three mornings a week before the shop opened, often swinging by Spalding's Bakery on the way in order to pick up a couple dozen donuts. Once at the shop, we would share coffee, donuts, and conversation until the guys began their day's work. Usually about mid-morning, after their work was well underway, Bob would want to go to breakfast at Denny's, where we could talk freely and share our lives more deeply. My time at the shop waiting for Bob to go to breakfast proved to have another benefit. Soon, there were so many people from Covenant Church who began to get their vehicles serviced and repaired at his shop that I was able to spend far more time visiting with them and actually investing in them than I would have been able to if I had been sitting in my office at the church's building. In the end, my efforts to invest God's love and my gift into these men at the shop did not add members to Covenant Church. But a few years later, some of them did come to profess faith in Jesus, which is, after all, the primary goal. My second involvement in outreach was actually begun by others. 
While John was presiding over the church, a man named Stephen Johnson had come to the building wanting to talk with a pastor. John Meadows was available that day, and during that visit, Stephen surrendered his life to Jesus. Following John's suggestion, Stephen joined a home group led by Kevin Metzler. Not only did Stephen become active in that group and in the church, but he also began sharing his newfound faith outside the church, including with his co-workers at the Comprehensive Care Center located in the nearby town of Winchester, where Stephen worked as a counselor. Several of his friends there came to Jesus, and some began to attend Covenant Church also. About that same time, Morton, Robert, and Trimble, members of Lexington Covenant, sensed a strong call to move with their family to Winchester. Prior to Stephen's conversion, Brent Goodrich and his family, who already lived in Winchester, had become members of Covenant Church and had eventually begun to look to me for pastoral oversight and had become part of our flock. Another Winchester couple also had started attending Covenant. They had not known Stephen, but they joined Covenant not long after his conversion. In due time, a home group formed in Winchester led by Mort under Kevin's oversight. In 1989, however, Kevin needed to turn the oversight of the Winchester group over to someone else so that he could focus on personal responsibilities. I sensed a call to offer my services, and the elders assigned it to me. I took the exhortation Brother Charles had given to John and me as a confirmation of that, and so I began to pray more fervently for the group in Winchester and to consider how to strengthen it. I was also asking the Lord what else I should be doing. Soon, the idea of planting two new churches as outreaches of Covenant Church had developed in my thinking, an idea I believed to be from the Lord. One was obvious, to see the home group in Winchester grow and become an effective church there. The other was almost as obvious once I began to think about it. Winchester is in Clark County, just to the east of Fayette County, where Lexington's located. Just to the south of both Fayette and Clark County is Madison County. One of the brothers, who had moved from Florida to be part of Covenant Church in the early 1980s, had bought a farm in northern Madison County and had started the River Hills housing development on that land. Several Covenant Church families had built homes in that development. My wife and I were also buying a piece of land in hopes of building our own home there at some time in the future. Several other Covenant people were planning to build there as well, and so it seemed right to encourage and help those people living in Madison County to plant a church there in that county in order to reach people in their area with the message of Jesus and his kingdom. Early on in the thought process, I presented these ideas to David and to John for prayer and consideration. Thus, at our 1990 elders planning retreat, I was authorized to begin spending one-third to one-half of my time trying to see churches begin in these two places. Later that year, Bill Kamenish, who had moved to Lexington in order to study under Dal Robinson, another elder, and uh, um, he came to study under Dal Robinson, but Bill was being pastored by David. Bill sensed the call to move his family to Winchester in order to work with Morton and me to see a church develop. Bill's call was confirmed by the elders, and the Kamenish family soon moved there. In 1990, 
I sought to lay the groundwork to play the plant the churches. The home group in Winchester continued to prosper. In late summer, the people invited friends to join them for five Sunday evenings, which we held in the old library building at College Park. Several people who had not been part of the Winchester home group attended these meetings, which was encouraging. We also had a few meetings with the people at River Hills in Madison County that year in order to pray together and to take counsel together about them developing into a church. The men in this group were truly dedicated to following Jesus and had demonstrated their radical commitment to follow the Lord and to be active in the body of Christ by buying land and moving there in the first place. And they were all active in Covenant Church. However, they were members of various flocks in Covenant Church and had not come together as a home group or a small group. They had not established a common identity as a group other than that they all lived at River Hills. From the beginning, it was clear that several of them had their own strongly held but quite different ideas about what it would take to start a church and about what it meant, would mean to be a church. Two questions soon developed in my mind. Would the brothers at River Hills come together and lay down their personal ideas in order to develop a common vision and strategy and was I the right person to be able to bring them together in that kind of unity? By the end of 1990, we had laid plans to begin regularly scheduled church services in both Winchester and in Madison County the following year. Sunday, September 3, 1990 was an unexpectedly significant day in my life for another reason. A few days earlier, on the 28th, David Reddish had me accompany him on a trip to Louisville Covenant Church for a pastor's meeting where Dennis Peacock was the speaker. Bill Livingston, our mutual friend and the pastor of that church, had invited Dennis to visit their church and speak to them that weekend. Now, I'd heard of Dennis, the founder of Strategic Christian Services, which, by the way, is now called Go Strategic, has a website, talks about the resources that they have. I had heard of Dennis several times, and in fact, a year or two earlier, at Paul Petrie's suggestion, I had written Dennis a letter in which I asked for his input concerning Humble Perspectives, a newsletter that I had begun to write and distribute from time to time. Dennis had graciously responded with helpful suggestions. In that Friday gathering, Dennis presented a plan to bring positive, biblically-based change to our cities. He talked about the need to recognize the, quote, elders in the city, unquote, a concept derived from biblical passages such as Deuteronomy 19.12, Ruth 4.2, Job 29.7-24, and Proverbs 31.23. Dennis challenged us to discover the elders in our own cities, those respected men from civil, business, and church spheres, who had both concern for the city and also influence in the city, in order to form a city council that would develop and implement strategies drawn from Scripture to the benefit of the community. Before we left the gathering that afternoon, David invited Dennis to speak on the following Sunday evening at Lexington Covenant. Our family and most of the faithful members of the church came to that meeting in which Dennis expounded on some of the primary themes characteristic of his ministry, the state of the culture, 
and the way the church, speaking primarily of people who profess to truly believe the Bible, had given the culture, the way the church had given the culture over to secularists by retreating into a religion of personal piety focused on going to heaven when I die, rather than to be a people focused on praying and seeking to see the kingdom of God grow in our communities. In other words, we were not focused on what Jesus told us to pray for, for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. Dennis reminded us of Jesus' prayer. Dennis declared that our final commission from King Jesus, given shortly before he ascended to be seated on the throne of the universe, where he'd been given all authority to rule heaven and earth, was the command for us to disciple nations and to teach them to obey his commands. Dennis emphasized that we are called to disciple nations, not just to make disciples of individuals within nations. Dennis also told us that there were extremely difficult days ahead of us because as a culture, we had rejected God's ways. Dennis went on to declare that God had given him a word of assurance. He believed God had said to him, you have time to obey me. Looking at it from the eternal perspective and from what we know God has promised to bring to pass, Dennis borrowed the words of a Rolling Stone song to proclaim time is on our side. Dennis challenged us to offer ourselves fully to God and thereby both to begin afresh to get our own lives, our families, and our community in order to truly act like what we are called to be, the people of God's kingdom who seek to see God's will done on earth in our own spheres of responsibility and influence. There was nothing truly new to me in Dennis's message. It was an excellent summation and declaration of primary themes the Lord had been building into my thinking for nearly 20 years. At the same time, it was a fresh word that pierced me to the core. During the testings of the 1980s, I had lost confidence in myself. That's a good loss and in our ability to build strong communities or churches. That's a necessary loss. Although my theology had not reverted and I continued to profess the same beliefs and goals, Dennis's message revealed that my faith had been shaken. I realized it was not only my faith in myself and our human ability to live the truth, that kind of faith needed to be shaken because it wasn't rooted in reality, but it wasn't only that that had been shaken. Also, my faith in God and God's ability, unbeknownst to me, had been shaken to some degree. My focus had turned too far from what God could do and was doing, and had turned too much toward what we could do and needed to do and were failing to do. Dennis's word was spirit-given. It reawakened faith in me that God is true to his word and his purposes. I knew once again deep within, that God's kingdom will indeed come. Confidence arose in me that we will see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. We will see it. Faith began to awaken that whatever small part I had been given by God's grace to contribute, I actually can contribute in the Spirit's power, not in my own. I realized anew that it's not my place to insist on seeing the culmination of the kingdom, but I simply needed to give myself in obedience to the task at hand. As soon as Dennis ended that message, 
I got out of my seat and called for my wife and children to accompany me to the speaker stage. There, in front of my brothers and sisters in the community, I made my stand with the de declaration, quote, what Dennis has said this evening is what I signed up for. As for me and for my house, we will seek the kingdom and serve the purposes of God. By this declaration, I was affirming the journey on which the Lord had been leading me through the years. I was especially recommitting myself to live according to the foundational truths that he had been opening to me. I was not committing myself to take a new path, but rather I was making a renewed commitment to stay true to the course to which the Lord had called me. Sometime during that weekend, Dennis Peacock mentioned that after the following that during the following summer, he was holding a special training course for young adults through his ministry, Strategic Christian Services, which as I said is now known as Go Strategic. This intern program, as he called it in the early years, was to be a three-year program. Each year, I learned, would start with an intensive, several days of teaching and activities for all who planned to participate in a year of study during that year, there would be small group accountability and a community project under the oversight of a local mentor. I knew this was something I wanted to do as a mentor for my son. Therefore, in the summer of 1992, I traveled with my son Elijah and two of his friends, Matt Petrie and Joel Jarek, to Santa Rosa for the first intern program summer intensive. We continued in the program through all three years. It was one of the great blessings of my life to work with these young men, contributing what I could as, as we did the studies, read the books, and worked on the projects together. On March 3rd, 1991, 43 people came together at Hannah McClure Elementary School in Winchester for the first Sunday morning worship gathering of Winchester Covenant Church. We packed out the classroom that we had rented. Therefore, the following Sunday, we met in the school's gymnasium. The gym was a big room for our small group, but it became our Sunday morning meeting place through September 1993. I took an announcement about our first meeting to the Winchester Sun, the community's newspaper, for publication on the weekly church page. For some unknown reason, the announcement was never published. Nevertheless, new people began to hear about our Sunday gatherings. Over the next months, several came to visit, and a growing number came to stay. By that time, I had begun to look to Paul Petrie for pastoral oversight. Therefore, while he was in Lexington, back home from Europe, to visit us in June 1991, I met with him to update him concerning my life and the work. I shared with Paul about Winchester Covenant's first few months and about the five or six new families who had become part of us. Paul's response was not what I expected. It's quite clear, he said, that these people are being drawn by your gifts and ministry. You need to find a house and move to Winchester. Immediately, I realized that Paul was correct. We did need to move to Winchester. We belong there. The fact that we were purchasing land at River Hills in Madison County was beside the point. God was establishing us in relationships with people in Winchester, Clark County, not with those in Madison County. In my heart and mind, it was decided. 
As soon as I got home, I told Patricia we needed to move, and I don't even remember that she questioned it. We began to prepare to sell our house in Lexington, a house that she had come to love, and we prepared to look for a new house in Winchester. I was so convinced that this was God's will, having heard this word from Paul, my pastor, that I completely failed to make my fellow elders, David and John, a part of the decision. Rather, I informed them of the change that I planned to make. Sadly, it would be some months before I realized fully that I had dishonored them, and especially David, our lead elder, by taking this precipitous action alone. When David pointed out the misstep to me later, I immediately admitted my wrong and asked his forgiveness. To his credit, he did forgive me. Not only that, but he and John generously gave their full support to the change, and together we came up with a plan that made it possible for our family to make the move and to get the church established with Lexington Covenant's relational and organizational support. The plan included a gradual change in financial support that continued into 1995, when at which time we established a team of elders in Winchester and filed our own Articles of Incorporation with the Commonwealth of Kentucky. It took several months to sell our house and then to buy one in Winchester. Once again, selling and buying a home became a trial of endurance and a test of faith. We put the Lexington house on the market in the summer of 1991 and began searching for a place to make our home in Winchester. Mrs. Elizabeth Spa, a 70-year-old retired school teacher and lifelong Winchester resident, became our real estate agent. She showed us dozens of homes over the next several months. Through Mrs. Spa, we learned many things about the community to which we were moving. It was difficult to find a house in our price range that was both adequate for our family and that would help us serve the church well. We were very cautious about how much debt load we should take on, since it seemed likely that in starting a new church our salary would have to be reduced at some point. We did make offers on two different houses, offers that even went a lot, little above the highest amount we had set as our limit. Both offers were refused. Ironically, both of those houses eventually sold for less than we offered. Looking back, we can see that God shut those doors. A few days before Christmas, interest rates fell and we received a reasonable offer on the Lexington House from a couple who were members of Lexington Christian Fellowship, where my friend Billy Henderson was the lead elder. By the time we could get to Winchester, however, the other houses we'd been interested in had also sold, soon as the interest rates had gone down. We looked diligently even desperately, but found no suitable house. On a Sunday about three weeks before we were scheduled to close the sale on our Lexington house, Scott Sidwell, who with his family had begun worshiping with us, told us that his next door neighbors had tried to sell their home in the summer of 1990 because they wanted to move to Florida. Although the house was no longer on the market, he believed they, that they still wanted to move. He gave us the address and the owner's phone number. We drove by the house, and when we saw the house in the neighborhood, we were not at all hopeful that we could afford it. Still, we had to find a house, 
so we called that very afternoon. The owners, Mr. and Mrs. Mollenkoff, invited us to come and look that afternoon, that very afternoon. The house was more than adequate in space and layout, although it badly needed some updated paint, kitchen wallpaper, and new carpet. The 2,500 square foot main floor had four bedrooms, two baths, a music room, a large kitchen, a large dining room, and a formal living room. The basement had been paneled and divided into three rooms, a laundry room with half bath and two carpeted rooms. Even though it was not a full basement, it was large, with one of the rooms having nearly 500 square feet. Patricia especially liked the openness of the main floor with its large windows letting in lots of light and no hallway in the house to chop up the space. Quite obviously, we thought as we walked through, this house is worth more than we can pay. After the walkthrough, we all sat down at the kitchen table in order to talk about the price, which, not unsurprisingly, was $30,000 more than the upper limit we had set for ourselves. Remember, this was 1992 now, early 1992. Prices were a lot different than we've seen the last number of years. I responded, based on everything we've seen, this is a very fair price. However, it's well beyond what we can pay. Thank you for showing us your home. We're sorry to have wasted your time. I walked outside with the husband and the ladies came out behind us. After we got in the car, Patricia told me that Mrs. Mollenkoff had asked her, couldn't you at least consider making an offer? Because we had nowhere else to go and our closing was coming up fast, I began to seek counsel about whether to try some to buy something so far above our price range. Hoping that I would be encouraged not to make such a large financial commitment, I talked with Paul Petrie. I talked with John Meadows. I talked with my friend Bill Livingston. And I talked with others too. Everyone encouraged us to make an offer. Finally, I went to Tom Monroe, another friend and a great brother in the Lord. Tom had taken some big financial setbacks as he sought to follow the Lord, so I was hoping that surely he would give me the conservative caution I was looking for. He did. Was I ever relieved? Rather than leave well enough alone, however, I said, there's only one thing that bothers me. What if God is wanting to stretch us beyond our comfort zone? Now, that sounds like God, Tom declared firmly. On Friday, five days after Scott had told us about the house, we gave the owners an offer that was $15,000 less than they had asked and $15,000 above our upper limit. In the written offer, we asked that they let us know their decision within 24 hours. Saturday passed and we heard nothing. Sunday passed. We still heard nothing. I was greatly relieved, even though it meant we had nowhere to go and our closing was coming up quickly. At least we wouldn't be biting off more than we could chew, financially, I was thinking. On the morning, Monday morning, I was with my son Elijah in the basement family room of our home when the phone rang. It was Mr. Mullenkoff calling to say that he and his wife wanted to accept our offer and that they wanted us to meet with them and their lawyer that afternoon to sign a purchase agreement. When I hung up the phone, my first fear-motivated words were, oh shit, we were going to have a house after all. 
and I was flat out scared. I called the man who was buying our Lexington house to tell him that we had nowhere to move before the closing. Since he and his wife were living in an apartment and were not required to move immediately, he graciously offered to let us rent the house until we could arrange financing and close on the new house in Winchester. On April 7, 1992, we took up residence in our new Winchester home. Even though it seemed clear that God had led us to that house, my faith was weak and I was very often anxious about the financial commitment we had made. Over the next 18 months, I took Patricia to look at several other houses, thinking that we could sell the one we were in and get it in a cheaper one. Nothing worked out. Finally, I was able to put it in the Lord's hands fully and I quit looking. We never missed a payment on that house. In fact, we were always able to pay a little extra each month against the principal. We never missed a meal. All our bills were paid on time. To top it off, we were able to pay the house off in 19 years instead of 30. Not only has that house served our needs well, but it also has provided office space for me and for five years, from 1994 to 1999, we had our Sunday worship gathering in the large basement room. Each Sunday we sat up about 80 folding chairs in that room and several times we set up 70 places at tables, tables for church meals that we shared in the room. We did in fact take a significant cut in pay as I thought we would. From the fall of 1993 until early 1996, I took a part-time job making deliveries for Reese Office Products, a local store owned by Margie and Rick Beach who had become members of our church. I had no problem working at a so-called secular job since from my youth it had never been my goal to be paid for ministry. The truth is I enjoyed driving the truck and making deliveries in a number of close-by counties. I made it my goal to make a favorable impression for Reese Office products. Even more, I wanted to represent Jesus well with a cheerful serving spirit. though it was not my place to stand around witnessing in words while I was on the clock. The part-time job did have an impact on the time I could give to study and other church work, of course, and it made it more difficult for me to build new relationships with leaders in the community and in the churches of Winchester and Clark County. Therefore, in early 1996, I quit that job and began to look to the Lord to fully support us through the church. And so ends chapter 22. The move to Winchester brought new relationships, brought new opportunities to serve. For me it was a time of new beginnings in several different ways. But that's for the next chapter. The Lord bless and keep you until we are together again, so to speak, for another episode of the Humble Perspectives podcast.